So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as your me from social. In today's episode, we're going back to one of our popular group chats that we had with Katerina Petraki, who's a head of strategy and expansion at Alibaba's B2B Marketplace. So Katerina is a leading mind when it comes to B2B marketplaces and is also an active advisor and angel investor. So this is a really great chat with Katerina, where we got to learn more about what led her to joining Alibaba, did a deep dive into their B2B marketplace, got to learn more about how it's evolved and scaled into being the largest B2B global trade platform, discussed topics like growth and expansion for B2B marketplaces, and also had a great group Q&A. So I really enjoyed this chat, and now you're going to find a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So Katerina, welcome to the group chat. You know, it's a real treat to have you join us here today. So I'd like to start off by saying, you know, huge thanks for taking the time to do so in advance. You know, so before we really dive into all of your awesome experience and more on uh, Alibaba's B2B marketplace, I think it might be great if uh, you can start off by sharing a little bit more in your background, though, for those that uh, might not know you. Thank you, Mike. I love this community and I'm really grateful to be part of it. And I really hope I could be helpful in any way I can. So a little bit about me. I've been in strategy and business development in different roles for the last 16 years with a focus on business expansion and marketplaces. The converging focus, if you want, of my career has been identifying opportunities for business growth, incubating them, launching them, and executing per scale. And I've done this in multiple settings. I've done this as an entrepreneur um, when I started my own business in Greece. I've done this in the industry, working for uh, Thomson Reuters in various areas, from setting up a new commodity business in emerging markets to launching NGOs in, in India. I've done this as a consultant where for Deloitte, I advised consumer and TMT clients, kind of like car audio product portfolio all the way to, to Disney's online engagement. And obviously I've done this as an operator leading the international growth for Alibaba's B2B business. And lastly, as an angel investor, I'm an active angel investor and startup advisor with a couple of board seats, um, especially focusing on network effect businesses stage in underserved kind of like communities and, and needs. And I was born and raised in Crete in Greece, uh, but I've lived and worked in, worked in like 10 countries and five continents. And I've only moved to the U.S. about eight years ago. Yeah, no, that's a really great background. Uh, thanks for sharing with us. You know, so much we're going to jump into here. Uh, I guess, you know, go- going back though, you know, uh, what, what led you to uh, joining the Alibaba team? I was at the point in my career where I was kind of like ready to return to my entrepreneurial roots. Uh, after years in strategy consulting and then corporate jobs. I mean, when I started my own business in Greece, uh, I made so many mistakes. I was so at university. I thought there was so much I didn't know about the world, let alone business. So I wanted to go out there, leave, move to different countries, learn from the best, and then eventually return. So it felt like after moving to the US, it felt like the right time and the right place to transition to a true operator role. And then at the same time, Alibaba was looking to globalize their business and establish presence outside of China for the first time. So they were quietly hiring to launch the B2B marketplace in the US and then subsequently global. So it was a tremendous opportunity really. And right up my alley, I just combined kind of like solving for business and cultural challenges at the same time, which is, it's interesting and fun. And my role kind of like changed and evolved a lot along the way, right? I currently run strategy and new business expansion for, for Alibaba.com. And for the last five years, I've really led the international expansion of the B2B marketplace, starting with the launch of the marketplace here in the US and then replicating this across different countries, primarily through 
good market planning partnerships and investments as of lately, right? And this has led to a transformation of the business. We used to be just a listings directory, right? So today we are uh, the largest global B2B trading platform, grew revenue, Forex in four years and multi-billion GMB from inception. So very happy that I'm still here and I'm part of this amazing business. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, pretty incredible as far as the you know, sense of scale. So uh, so I think uh, most of us here, you know, have, uh, of course, heard the name Alibaba. So could you kind of give us like an overview of it as a B2B marketplace and then maybe touching on some of the uh, specific aspects of it? So Alibaba.com is the first business that Jack Ma built 24, 25 years ago, right? To help small businesses connect with each other and trade on a global basis, right? Still starting with, you know, Chinese factories selling to the world, right? So it didn't really start as a China to China platform. It always, from the beginning, was an international business, but with a China uh, seller uh, kind of like context. Um, it's part of the larger Alibaba economy, which I'm sure you might be a little bit more familiar with. So we have kind of like core commerce, uh, digital media and entertainment, local services, payment and financial services like Ant, logistics, we have cloud, name it, right? Um, so to give you a sense, like in terms of the scale, we handle over kind of like 1 billion annual active customers globally and over 1.2 trillion in GNB in our marketplaces alone, right? But Alibaba.com specifically is the B2B marketplace of the group, right? It has over 40 million active buyers, 300,000 plus sellers. And to give you kind of like an understanding because the B2B value chain is so vast and complex, if you think of the value chain starting with raw materials, moving to manufacturing and production, distribution and wholesale, retailers, end use consumers, we play a big role across all of them, but more so in the beginning of that value chain, right? So our buyers are manufacturers, they're wholesalers, they're brands, retailers, right? Less so end use, right? They're coming on a platform to buy products, to create their own products uh, or to trade products, right? And then on the seller side, we have factories, we have manufacturers, we have distributors who are selling both custom and finished goods. Traditionally, our platform was primarily for custom goods, but it has evolved a lot to finish goods as well, right? All categories you can imagine, from a needle to a car. Um, but our top platform categories in terms of global demand really are electronics, apparel, uh, and home goods. So think of other the one-stop B2B e-commerce platform connecting small businesses with each other to trade. And kind of like the unique uh, business model that we have is we don't take commission on the transactions, right? And we never take ownership of any goods at any point of time. The way we make money is through a subscription model for our sellers and advertising and BAS fees on top of that for buyers and sellers. So, so that's kind of like, you know, where you're at today, but if you were to kind of like go back to the, uh, you know, to the earlier stages, right. Um, or maybe, you know, or earlier points in time, um, you did mention as far as it kind of started out as like more of like a listing directory. So could you maybe share a little bit more about, you know, how it's evolved from a marketplace experience and then maybe even kind of like the, the business? Yeah, absolutely. So for the first 20 years of, of the existence of the platform, really it operated as yellow page, this thing. You go there, you find the supplier, you communicate with our chat tools, and then you take the transaction off the platform. That has been really Alibaba.com for 20 plus years, right? It was only five years ago that the China leadership team decided to really invest in that kind of like marketplace and turn it into a truly functioning marketplace, really, and, and open up the platform outside of China as well, right? And I was one of the first hires, as I mentioned, uh, to join and help in that. So the work and the evolution could be really described in four phases if you want. And the phase one was moving from this listing platform for this kind of like media business, if you want, like yellow pages, which was focused on sending leads to Chinese manufacturers to 
and marketplace, right? Where transactions take place on the platform, where you're having the greatest services, payments, logistics, inspection, financing, name it, right? But in, in, and, and supporting a lot of different trade routes rather than just the China-US. The second transformation and the second phase was more around how do you expand the supply beyond the existing one, right? We started with like just a few thousand sellers globally to tens of thousands uh, today globally, right? And very soon we will be 50-50, you know, 50% coming from China, 50% from the rest of the world. Phase three of that transformation, I would say, was uh, investing in our buyers. We already had a very large buyer base of 20 million plus active buyers, but how do you hone in on that? How do you scale that? How do you increase the wallet share? Uh, we more than doubled uh, the, the size of our buyers, kind of like the list of our active buyers. And on top of that, we obviously drove um, tens of billions of GMB as a result of that. And then the last phase, which is what I've been focusing for the last uh, few years, I would say, is growing in adjacent markets, right? Okay, so now we created this marketplace. It's We have the right category that we have tested kind of like all the right elements. And, and this is growing beautifully and we can replicate it in different countries and different regions. But which are which are other kind of like locations, other customer segments, other kind of like verticals or other kind of like services that we want to be part of, not just from an Alibaba perspective, but through investments, right? Uh, so I've been focusing a lot on that. So by any kind of measure, I mean, it has been an amazing journey. Build the team in the US and globally. We went from like zero GMV to tens of billions of sourcing GMV, which translates really to hundreds of billions worth of goods that are being resold on Shopify, on Amazon, right? Like the easiest way to think about that is what you're buying as a consumer at some point of time, it has originated at Alibaba, right? <laughs> to be created. And then and then went from kind of like triple digit million with kind of like flat to, to low single digit growth to billions uh, with double digit growth and the fastest growing business units in the group. So Definitely very, very happy and very proud of the results, but also a lot of lessons and a lot of hiccups along the way, right? That I'm more than happy to learn because because that's way we that's how we all learn, right? And that's how uh, I learned along the way. Yeah, no, I I, I can only imagine so some of those, and that's uh, quite quite the uh, evolution. You know, so, so you did uh, mention the point as far as you know growth and expansion, um, and for B two B marketplaces, that's a uh, that's something that uh you know we uh, discuss in the community, but I uh, don't get to uh, talk about on our group chats that much. You know, so I would love to, uh, you know, learn a little bit more about how you think about growth and in, in expansion at Alibaba, and then maybe even um, more generally speaking for B two B marketplaces. You know, in the earlier stages. Yeah, yeah, of course, and I think uh, in, in an interesting way, like it doesn't differ so much if you want in terms of like you know a marketplace is a marketplace. Um, it becomes like B two B needs are a little bit more complex, but but it does follow the same kind of like playbook if you want. Like from one hand side it's very important to find the right market and constrain it and then kind of like solve the chicken and the egg problem. So so when speaking about the right market, I mean the trifecta, I like to call it like the geography, the product category and the customer segment, That that's the right market that you want to focus on. And it, it's delicate balance, right? Because we couldn't possibly succeed in the US with the existing platform categories, right? Because they were, I can't compete for price with China, right? Uh, but also, like we had to expand our customer segment because we're transforming the platform capabilities to include transactions and other services, right? So, as you're thinking about for ads, but also for the companies, my portfolio companies that I advise, and I'm sure other B2B finders out there, is that honing it, just spend some time to find that right market, right? And and you do that through experimentation, right? Then you use a number of criteria for that, right? Uh, high fragmentation of supply and demand, 
buyer seller relationships that are not monogamous. That's a very B2B related problem. A uh, big expandable market, right? And I, it's a, a loaded topic that I can speak about for hours. Uh, is your value prop compelling for, for this geography, for this product group, right? Um, and, and can you choose categories? Can you choose geographies? Can you choose areas where you can be part of the payment flow, right? And I don't want to like, I can go deep into each one of them. As an example, like when we're talking about buyer-seller relationship, not being monogamous, right? Because this is, a, this is an area where we have traditionally struggled and it's very common among B2B participants out there. You have kind of like highly customized products in our case, right? For retailers and brands, we have commodity products. So independently of how much value you're trying to add through your platform, some will leak, right? Some will leave uh, once you find the supplier because it's just a complex interaction, right? Um, so we had to focus the way we solved for that is we had to focus more on finished goods, right? Later in the value chain for retailers um, and potentially a little bit more end use rather than just your earlier stage manufacturers and brands because this allowed us to, to enter into transactions that had a higher frequency, right? They might have had the lower AOV, which is like a battle that we're we're managing, but then it's like, oh, we went from like that high AOV to that low, but it had much higher frequency, which was critical because it's much better for your buyer to come and visit you often r rather than twice a year. They can create loyalty and they can find new suppliers, right? And lead to more transactions. So, and a lot of like different things that I can mention here, maybe as part of like kind of like the, the payment flow that I mentioned earlier, for example, some industries like auto are just not set up for upfront payment, right? Like through a marketplace sometimes because payment leaves at the end of a long purchasing cycle. So we needed to stay away from such categories or segments that, you know, when we're building the end-to-end -end payment solutions for trade, like, so this is just one example. And I can give numerous examples in each one of these criteria. But once you've done this analysis and you have a hypothesis, in pencil, as I like to say, on the right geography, the right category, the right segment, then you have to constrain, right? Like in our case, our strategy geared towards products that go in your body or on your body. So health um, and food kind of like areas that are highly regulated in like US and Italy or like more developed areas. And then categories that are already happening on our marketplace that are already being transacted on our marketplace, but from growing trade hubs, right? Such as Vietnam and Mexico. Uh, where local demand would increase kind of like the happiness of our buyers, right? And on top of that, we focused on, as I said, finished goods in the reseller part of the value chain, but then we had to decide how to constrain it. And for us, it was impossible to constrain it based on geography, really, because it was, you know, we're a global marketplace. It was hard to do it based on product because we are generalists. So what we did is we constrained it based on the trade flow. So we said, we're going to start China to US first, then US to US, Italy to Italy, Mexico to Mexico if you want, and then we're going to go US to Mexico, US to Italy, US to the world eventually, right? Um, so this is, it's, it is a very good tactic because, you know, there are fewer barriers in terms of trust to overcome, and it's much easier to kind of like go big if you start small in the beginning. So that's kind of like the first step that I would say that everybody has to face, and, and B2B is, is more acute because it's, the needs are a little bit more complex. And then the second one is, okay, so you have identified the right market, you have constrained it. How do you build the initial supply and demand, right? Uh, which part of the marketplace do you focus first, right? In our case, supply was more critical to aggregate first. And that's the case for most marketplaces too. But for us, it was more critical for multiple reasons, right? First of all, it's the way we monetize. Our value prop and our mode really centered around unique supply. 
And then we needed to create a local ecosystem where even though we had like a strong buyer base in the US, we had zero supply. So it was like very important for us to focus on, on that area first, right? And we tried many different channels, right? I won't say all the channels and some worked and some didn't work. And that's a big lesson as to you have to quickly determine what works and what doesn't work for your business because, you know, every business is unique. Community was a very, very big and important channel for us. At any point of time, it was the, like the second or the, the first or the second highest performing channel for us in terms of like driving leads to our sales team. Obviously, direct sales, referral, referral, reseller partnerships, subsidies, some worked, some didn't work. But, uh, but um, you know, I can speak about these in more detail if you prefer. Yeah, no, this is a, this is great. I, I would actually love to, uh, yeah, to to dive a little bit deeper into the uh, you know the importance of kind of building out like a what's like community or kind of like the, the partnership you know ecosystems in the earlier stages. Yeah, yeah. So so in terms of the community, as I said, you know, with the exception of like um, events we organized or co-hosted, it was completely free, right? You have a content that's generated by our partners, our customers, anything with kind of like the objective to help you run your business better and grow independently of any benefit to you, right? Of any benefit to us. And this was integral in like building the trust and becoming an alliance or community early on. And there's like numerous examples out there of businesses that have grown on the back of their communities. Like think of HubSpot, think of Etsy, right? Like these businesses really double down on that community. And the way we started really, I would say, is through our own content eventually, but but the, in the beginning, but eventually it became our partner content. And we started with like, things closer to our product and then we went outward from there so like how to how to transact with alibaba how to do exit alibaba and then um like how to, what are the best products to source like what are the best businesses to use to ship and and outward and outward and and then that created kind of like a place where you would come and you know first of all it helps you build the brand with with the right target audience that you want and secondarily it drives leads to you and you have a kind of like a large community to tap on or not only to convert them into your marketplace but also and more importantly really to have a line of communication with with the local buyers and sellers right this was like a critical channel that we were using at any point of time to to kind of like experiment with new ideas right if we wanted to launch a new financing tool we would go to that community first and kind of like do you know, a lot of interviews using them, like, and, and run a lot of different topics to see what would be of interest to them. So community at any point of time and investing in that is really, really critical. Um, and you don't need to kind of like reinvent the wheel. There's so many resources out there that you can recycle in the beginning, but you have to be laser focused in helping the right buyer and the right seller who's coming in that. And obviously it could be expanding to actually uh, using that community to attract partners too. So of course, in the beginning, you focus on like the buyer and seller, but then eventually it becomes all about how do you become known in your ecosystem as an important player so that you can attract others to be part of your business. Yeah. And uh, also too, I did want to touch on uh, the importance of trust a little bit more, right? So, you know, as B2B marketplaces, trust is important. Um, and a lot of times, you know, getting getting some of the kind of buyers or sellers across the line since they are a little bit, you know, higher transaction sizes and also too kind of like uh, cross border sometimes. So, you know, do, do you have any kind of tips for for maybe B2B marketplace founders on, you know, how to build trust? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's interesting. Like, um, from from one from one hand side, you have kind of like all the challenges of like building a marketplace, right? Which is like almost impossible business to get them started. And then on top of that, you have 
kind of like the big, the the challenges of all the B2B businesses, right? Of like largely undigitized, lack of price transparency, legacy systems, island data, namely. Um, but really going back to your topic around uh, around trust, like the most important thing that we're trying to solve for is B2B relationships are really personal, right? B2B buyers expect pricing, they expect product catalogs, they expect item selection, they expect everything to be done and customized and organized based on their needs, because that's how they've done business for like hundreds of years, right? It's happened face-to-face, it happens on the phone. And when you're trying to move these uh, transactions online, uh, especially it's for the first time, then you get a lot of resistance, right? And the adoption is lower. So the interesting part is that the needs may be more complex, but they can 100% be solved in a better and more efficient and more profitable way online, right? It's a misconception, actually, that you have to overcome. So, like, as you're trying, as you're working towards kind of like building that trust, some of the ways I advise my startups to, to solve for this is, first of all, like, be patient and educate the market. And sometimes it's really convenient if you're the second in the market, if you're the third in the market, right? Because somebody else has done the legwork for you to build that trust and to overcome that initial hump of like, why would they sell online? I'm doing so well here. In some industries, actually, the the players who are involved, they they could have interior motives, right? And like continue in the relationship the way it is, right? So so first of all, like educate the market. Second of all is, is how do you kind of constrain the marketplace early on? as I mentioned earlier, because it enables you to build for a smaller group, right? And make that group happier before you move on. But obviously, one of the largest parts out there is like going to market with trusted partners, right? Who can vouch for you and allow you to make a soft landing in niche industries, right? Like, for example, at Alibaba, our brand equity, obviously, from what you said too, right? In the US, among non-tech professionals was zero, right? Like you were going to to all these distributors and manufacturers and you are doing this, trying to launch a business in the most adverse geopolitical challenges that you can ever face in the US with a Chinese business, right? So trying to digitize this kind of like old-fashioned analog industry, right, of distributors and manufacturers. And we needed to get people to trust Alibaba. So one of the ways was to get our customers and our partners to speak for us, right, instead of us. So I can deal with the largest distributors and the largest manufacturers in all the top categories that I wanted to focus on. Even though our platform hadn't even launched yet, our platform was meant to be for small businesses. But like, like working with like larger names out there enabled us, and these names were actually trusted uh, companies in the US, they enabled us to carry their name and to speak to the market about us rather than us saying we are here. We actually never went to say we are here, come do business with us. We did it through partners and through um, through our customer stories, right? And that was really critical. We launched with 20 partners who run campaigns and events to introduce us to the market instead of the other way around. And part of the, the beauty of that is you can be very creative as to the kind of deals that you cut, right? Especially as an early founder who doesn't have the Alibaba name and, and kind of like all assets, right? Uh, which would be a little bit different. It's like just going out there and speaking and listening to the distributors and see what they want, right? Like what we realized, some of them just wanted access to small businesses that they didn't have because they were working with like large distributors out there. Some of them wanted to use it as a tool to connect with uh, with, with like uh, 
one one person businesses out there that didn't have the chance to, to test new products, right? So all of this is very important. So number one, really, the most critical part is going to market with trusted partners, and then it's building trust with your product, right? And that would be done with guarantees like escrow services, right, and transparency with supplier information, certification, rating system if it's applicable, right? Alibaba back in 1999 faced the same problem, right? And the way we overcame it, it was creating an escrow service called um, Alipay. And, and you know, the arbitration mechanism in case of a conflict, right? And because no bank would lend us any money or enable the transactions, Alipay was created. This is really the origins of Avant Financial, right? And to this day, it remains the main element of trust. So usually, you know, the best way to do that is do it through there's the soft elements to build trust, the partners, the tools that you create for one side of your marketplace, right? Um, the kind of like policies that you have on your marketplace to make sure things work all the way to more hard stuff, which is guarantees, escrow service, payments, like being part of that transaction flow that enables you to be that that brand, right? And that's, that's really um, kind of like some of the specific B2B challenges that, you know, I've faced in my experience and, and, you know, I see a lot of my portfolio companies facing too. Yeah, no, those are uh, really great points. And I like, uh, you know, the, the one you mentioned as far as like having your customers or your, or your partners kind of speak for you and help you kind of build that trust and, you know, and, and brand and a market. So, um, you know, on that, on that note too, so you did mention that specific B2B marketplace challenges. So there, uh, are there any others uh, that, that you've uh, noticed for maybe earlier stage B2B marketplaces? Yeah. So I would say, um, uh, a ton of them, but, um, Maybe like one that we can talk a little bit more about is uh, uh, developing a strong ecosystem, right? Um, so um, what what you see very often is it's very hard to scale without having kind of like the right support. And we touched a little bit of that, but like B2B marketplaces have this tremendous opportunity to scale into a platform with an entire ecosystem of partners. And, and partners can help you kind of like build the trust. They can help you drive and retain buyers and sellers, they can help you add value to your product, right? So are we developing, under developing your own ecosystem, you kind of like start by identifying, as we said, who is your right customer segment, right? And that customer segment, who are the, all the businesses, who are all the kind of like people they're interacting with every day, right? So if you're speaking about an SMB distributor, right, which association are they part of, which magazine are they reading? And then you also, on top of that, identify the right structure, the right incentives to a lot of like trial and error. And you develop this beautiful ecosystem that, you know, not everything will work and that's expected because, you know, you're, you're paving a new path. And these are also personal relationships when like two, two companies are coming together for a partnership. But when they do work and the ones that do work, they drive significant results that are lasting for a very long time, as long as you still develop that partnership, right? At Alibaba, the first couple of years, we launched a hundred plus partnerships, like from strategic to marketing, to channel to service, product integration, name it, right? We had the certified partner programs to help kind of like, to across all borders, I said, both to like help us build the brand, but also how do we drive value, more and more value to our buyers and sellers. Um, so, you know, whatever the strategy might be really investing in, kind of like at least opening up the platform to value-added services to other companies can amplify your results and make your product much stickier and prevent the leaky bucket. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a super helpful uh, exercise too. So we'll, we'll have to uh, share about that in the, in the community following for some, for some uh, founders and teams here. 
So we're actually going to get into questions here. Otherwise, you and I could just, uh, you know, go on chatting about topics. I, I feel like for, you know, hours on here about B2B marketplaces. Um, so we'll just uh, get to questions now if that sounds good. Hey, uh, Justin, do you, uh, you want to come on? Yeah, thanks, Mike. And thanks, Katarina. That was um, uh, extremely high value. I don't I don't know if I've ever heard somebody uh, say nearly every sentence have like, something valuable in it. I was like typing furiously. Um I was actually curious, though. I mean, you, you've got so much good granular stuff in there, but if you could zoom out for a second and then and look at the future uh, of B two B marketplaces, I've seen kind of. Um, it looks like there's a little bit of grouping, and um, so like ingredients versus finished products versus components and electronics. I was just curious from your viewpoint, since you're like at both levels of startup and really big uh, companies, do you see it being like more consolidation across categories or is there be, will there be more of like proliferation of just extremely niche marketplaces? Um, I kind of wanted to leave it open just see like, you know, what was in your brain with that kind of stuff? Yeah, thank you, Justin, and, and great question, actually. Uh, so the answer is uh, it, it depends on the country, but we're in the US, so let's speak about the US for a second. Um, so, uh, in the U S because you've had like already existing general B2B platforms, if you want, both for things like what we do at Alibaba.com all the way to Amazon business, right? Which are also general marketplaces, but for different use cases, what you see a lot here is two things. You see really, really like right now proliferation of like B2B marketplaces that are very vertical, like, you know, like specific like specific chemicals all the way to kind of like specific commodities that are being created because for two reasons first of all because there's just so much need for digitization and b2b like b2b is like really offline like there's just very few transactions that are happening online today that you will see it more and more like let's try to digitize all different categories out there so that's one thing that you see and i can send you if you're interested like i have a full list of like constantly kind of like all these like B2B marketplaces that are coming into kind of like vertical needs to address vertical needs and category. And then the other thing is you start to see, which is a little bit outside of the marketplace, but you start to see a lot of these like SaaS marketplace, right? They, they tend to kind of like use this other way, as I said earlier, to drive to like, it's much easier to crack the chicken and the egg problem if you start with a SaaS platform first and then you transition to marketplace. It's tricky to be that, but you see a lot of these uh, lately, right? You see, you see a lot of them who start completely as like, let me create a platform to solve for a problem and then open it up to a marketplace. So that's what I see. And I, I, you have more and more of this happening. And then at some point, you know, I would expect like in a few years down the line, and you will start seeing some consolidation, right? That the level one, if you want category level, right? And I mean, you know, like instead of like this beauty as level one category, and there's all the way down to like nail salon that you could be focusing, right? So there, there are marketplaces who do like very, very specific things, right? So you will see consolidation at the um, level one category, and then you will see consolidation in... Um, kind of like the services category. So Lightspeed, for example, uh, has been kind of like great at like getting a lot of these marketplaces and a lot of these services um, that help create kind of like the SaaS platform that they have today. But I mean the, the ERP solution, I mean the, the, the VC. Uh, so that's what I see a lot in the US. 
And then specifically, kind of like if you talk about more globally, there's there's certain industries and there are certain countries that they still haven't developed really a, a kind of like a good general marketplace, right? So you 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 see like in Mexico, in India, in kind of like parts of Vietnam, you will see more and more kind of like domestic solutions that haven't existed because they have traditionally been more export hubs, right? Um, so we see there more general marketplaces coming together. And then the third thing that I see in general is the lines between B2B and B2C, at least from an investment perspective, as I'm looking at it right now, they're blaring so much with like influencers coming in the creator economy. So there's a huge need out there and I haven't seen a great platform yet, but there's a huge need out there to connect these two, right? Um, so be it is at the marketplace that does that, is that the SaaS solution that does that? I don't know, but, uh, you will see, I believe more and more somebody was trying to solve that problem, right? Connecting the industry as a whole. Awesome. Amazing answer. Thank you. Yes. It's a great, a uh, great question. Thanks, uh, Justin. And yeah, thanks for the, the answer and then the breakdown on that, uh, Katarina, I feel like that's a, uh, kind of a breakdown on opportunities for B2B marketplaces and a, and a request for some too in there. So that'll be super helpful. Hey, uh, hey, Mike, do you, uh, do you want to come on? I just had a question around about financing. I know Alibaba has like the yeah, kind of like a financial service model. Um, what was that process like before? Like, how are you providing liquidity for like manufacturers in China as like these pieces like of equipment are being shipped to the United States and stuff? Um, so um, liquidity can be defined differently, right? Like liquidity for a marketplace like the one we are today obviously is defined by like the probability of a, of like somebody coming on your site, becoming a transaction. Uh, back in the days you were, when we were not enabled in transactions, we def that was defined really, uh, if you can see it a little bit, if you can be a little bit more creative about the definition of liquidity, that was for us kind of like the probability that somebody would create a contract, right? And uh, like through our escrow service, right? So. We were enabling kind of like the the flow of the funds, if you want, from China to US, but nowhere else in the world, right? So it would be like for us to kind of like, you know, when a, when a buyer would come and they would speak to a supplier, we would provide the, if you want like a contract template at the very early days where both parties agree on a specific time, on a specific quality of the product, all the specifications, and then the money were, were held by kind of like this escrow service. And then uh, there would be like a 30% payment up front and then 70% upon delivery. Uh, so that's how this operated for the longest period of time. But very often, you know, what would happen is because these are monogamous relationships, because they're custom goods, there's like, a, there's like a, somebody trying to create these. That's a bad example because it's Apple. But uh, and, and they would just come on our side. And they would say, okay, here's a manufacturer. I found him. I'm sending you this design and I want you to create it and then send me a sample. And then let's make like, like one big order. But then, you know, once I have confirmed that this is a good seller, then I would just take it off the platform. And that was part of the problem that all to be marketplaces have, especially we had, because it was like very, very custom goods in the beginning that we were creating, right? Um, so in the very early days, we just literally, it was ad hoc through a contract template uh, that was being created. And financing was very limited. Financing was really only on the seller side. 
when we launched in the US and went global, uh, we enabled financing for buyers and that really unlocked GMP for us, right? Uh, so that was like one of the most important things that you will see, like at FAIR, which is a great B2B marketplace, for example, like the need for financing is so complex on the B2B side for the buyer that if you try to unlock that part, then you, you can have great results, right? It is a risky uh, endeavor, uh, depending how you do that, right? Like FAIR, I would say they do it more on the, they take the risk. Um, I think so, at least. Um, we don't. We have partners. So at any point of time, Alibaba remains very asset light and we don't take part of, we were rather like a big part of, of the ownership of goods uh, or that transaction from a financing perspective. But, you know, like maybe like one way, I don't know exactly what kind of business you have, but, you know, like one way to start is by offering like net payments through, through, a, through a partner out there. Awesome. It's it a great question. It comes up a few times in the community. So, um, hey, uh, Nicole, do you uh, want to come on? Thanks, Mike. Um, hey, Katarina, thanks so much for that. That was really helpful. Um, I just had a question for you. Um, if you had any advice on um, how the, how I can run incentives for our sellers to kind of follow through on like a customer service standpoint. Like I think one thing um, as a marketplace owner, one thing that we preach and we want to like live up to is like extremely phenomenal customer service. Um, but then some of our sellers are like smaller businesses. We're about two years in, so we're still a fairly early stage, but some of our sellers are like smaller businesses and like they don't always follow through. And I'm noticing that we've got some like blind spots in terms of them not living up to like our fulfillment SLAs and like things like that. So I'm just wondering if you had any advice for like early stage founders on what types of like incentives we might be able to roll out for our sellers to do a better job this is no actually this is uh, this is a very good question um i don't have a great answer but i will attempt to answer it um because we've had that a lot right and and i don't know exactly your marketplace but we we're we're very seller centric that's how that's how we originated that's how we we are as a business so we tend to err more towards kind of like the supplier than the buyer which is a little bit of a problem sometimes in the transaction but this is we we see that very often right because um, our platform is also a little bit hard to operate for both the seller and buyers. So we don't make it necessarily easy. <laughs> sure, you can make name all kind of like reasons because we try to kind of like uh, answer to a lot of different customer segments, a lot of different geography, a lot of needs. But um, kind of like some of the things that uh, create the problem very often is exactly what you're saying. Like sellers not keeping up with their SLA, not keeping up with what they said they're going to do. And it starts sometimes with the engagement of the seller, right? Like from one hand side, you want to create a product and you want to create kind of like a customer experience that makes it really, really, really easy for them, right? Uh, and what I say by that is like we, for example, started seeing a lot of problems with both the engagement of the sellers and also kind of like how they were performing with buyers. And when we went deep into that, we realized it was really nuts. Right? If we hadn't created the right tools for them, it was so hard for them to onboard. It was so hard for them to kind of like come into our platform every time and kind of like connect with different buyers, right? So, so like I would say the first thing is if you can go really deep into the reason why this is happening, right? And like one way to do that is go and speak to your friendliest and let's friendly if you can, kind of like sellers out there and see 
I, like what 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 process what uh, thing they're doing on your marketplace that takes most time that's the most annoying that's the most complex for them right and see is this perhaps a reason why they're not responding right another another thing that we found out uh, in the process of like trying to kind of like uh, understand why our sellers were not really kind of like adhering to our policies or, or like performing as well as we we wanted is we had casted a very wide net in the beginning because we didn't know which seller would work, right? So as we tried to understand two years down the line which ones were performing better, we were able kind of like focus on the sellers that we wanted more, right? Like instead of like focusing in the universe of SMB sellers, maybe one reason is, you know, your platform or like the need that you're trying to solve for is more acute in a specific segment, in a specific vertical in a specific, I don't know, type of customer, right? And maybe by focusing more on that instead of the universe of your sellers, you will see like better results. So that's one other thing that we found ourselves. And then the last thing that I would say is uh, it had to do with like um, the, uh, the, how we made sure that we make the sellers happy. And I know you asked me about the buyers, but again, like very often you see the problem being on like making sure that you make your sellers happy before, you know, they, they transact and they do all the things that you want on your marketplace. So we found, for example, that if a seller hadn't made a sale in the first three months of our owner marketplace, their likelihood of renewing was extremely low and they were completely disengaged for the rest of the year. Cause our, we had like uh, subscription services. So you buy this for the year. So like for the rest of the year, they wouldn't be engaged at all. They wouldn't buyers would be writing to them. They wouldn't be responding. Our counties would be writing numerous kind of like emails to them, trying to get them on the call. And really once we like figured out this being the origin of the problem as another one, then we hold in and we said, okay, let's do, let's adjust our targeting strategy. Like we're going to focus on the general SMB ecosystem of sellers, but we're going to spend more of our energy on that category that works better and we see them engaging them better with our platform, right? On the product side, we launched specific kind of like banners, specific um, kind of like we, we simplified our onboarding process. We added category-specific pavilions. All of these to help promote our high-value buyers to them and show them kind of like the value that they would have by like, kind of like responding to them. So a lot of things that don't scale, and then obviously, you know, some of the things that you might be thinking of is very, very targeted account management and seller engagement services, right? We launched a fully managed account service that was helpful in the beginning, but you have to be, you have to be careful with that because then you, like, for example, if you have a, an external partner manage the, the relation, the, like the, the side, the storefront of the seller for the buyer, that's good in the beginning as long as they create training for the seller. Because otherwise, you just create this huge ecosystem of, of channel partners who are managing sellers for you, right? And that's not for, good for the seller. But that's an, an example of like something you can do in the beginning. Or, or we launched a series of kind of like valuable content and data reports, right? Like X customer managed to get X percent up in their sales because because they engaged with a buyer, you know, in like 10 minutes or what have you. And then we also launched the Power Seller Happiness Program to focus on the segment that we believe could, could be kind of like the best, right? Um, and, and we really like kind of like did a number of things for them. Like we send them qualified leads, we send them data reports. We went really above and beyond to make them happy. So I don't have a great answer, but, but I guess the answer that I'm alluding to is go deep into understanding why this is happening, right? Because it might be 
it might be related to the platform, it might be related to like the experience that they're having, or it might be simply related to the fact that they don't see the value yet. So once you understand what the problem is, then you can educate them, then you can identify the right services, right? Because at the end of the day, kind of the most important thing of a marketplace is to drive liquidity, right? But for this to happen, you need to make them happy first. So start small, like make them super happy and make sure that's working before you go, before you go bigger. That would be kind of like one thing that I would say. And it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult topic. I know. So I can, I can speak offline too, if that's helpful. Thanks so much. That was great. Appreciate it. Great question. So, so we're actually almost out of time here, Katarina. So I want to be conscious of that I'll actually uh, save my question for some other time. I think, uh, you know, we covered a lot, but I feel like we, uh, we could probably do a part two for this also. Um, but, you know, right before we uh, wrap things up, though, did you have any uh, maybe like a uh, final kind of tips on uh, B2B marketplaces that you might want to share with us all here as a, uh, you know, maybe even some earlier stage B2B marketplace founders? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, if I were to leave you with like one thing, I would say that marketplaces are these beautiful businesses, right? That we all love. That's why we're part of this community, right? They're impossible to get them started, but they have these winner-take-all dynamics, right? And But like one thing to say is that because it's this live ecosystem of buyers, of sellers, of partners, you don't want to mess too much with the core mechanisms of the marketplace, right? Like Because they have this butterfly effect. You change one thing here, and then a month later, it has impact here, right? And when you see that, you're like, you have no idea why this happened and why, why, why it's happening now, right? So try to design kind of like thoughtfully from the start and make minor structural changes on the way and make them slowly. Like make, make a change and then see the result they have instead of making them all together. Because that's something that we made as a mistake and I see happening all the time. Because, you know, as an entrepreneur in very early stage, you're, you're hustling through, you're trying to like make it work, right? Then you have all these deadlines from an investor perspective, from what have you. So it's just the beautiful thing is that you can start from scratch, right? You don't have kind of like the baggage that comes with a 20 year business. Um, so, so like do this thoughtfully and, and, and most importantly, have fun. No, that's a, that's, it's definitely great. So you got some head nods. So definitely are relatable with us here too. So cool. And then uh, last but not least, um, time for a quick plug. Where can we uh, keep up with you at? Happy to share my mail address. I can share it here or or um, uh, or through LinkedIn. I'm very I'm very active on LinkedIn and obviously on the Everson Marketplace. I always respond just there. Yeah, no, you're you're great in the community too. So you'll probably get uh, quite quite a few messages from founders here right after. So yeah, thanks everyone for joining in the uh, great questions. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.